Good morning, church. Good to see you all. We're going to study scripture together, so I hope you got one of these, or you can turn it on your phone or whatever. Open up to Acts chapter 2 is where we're going to be, and I'm going to start reading in verse 14 as we begin our time, and I'm going to read through the end of, almost to the end of the chapter, starting in verse 14. Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and proclaimed to them, fellow Jews and all you residents of Jerusalem, Let this be known to you and pay attention to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose since it's only nine in the morning. Just pause for a second in case you weren't here last week. All these people were filled with the Holy Spirit. They started speaking in 15 other dialects that they hadn't learned. And so there are questions about what in the world is going on out here. And one of the people or some group of people in verse 13 says, I can tell you what's going on. The Galileans are drunk again, which apparently might have been an issue in that time. And so they're just saying, yeah, I can explain this very easily. Galileans hit the bottle too hard once again, and Peter stands up and he says, they're not drunk. It's nine in the morning. Uh, On the contrary, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. What you're seeing is prophesied by Joel in the Old Testament. And then he quotes Joel. It will be in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all people. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. I will even pour out my spirit on my servants in those days, both men and women, and they will prophesy. I will display wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and a cloud of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord comes then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Fellow Israelites, listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. God raised him up, ending the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by death. For David says of him, and now he's going to quote Psalm 16, I saw the Lord ever before me, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. Moreover, my flesh will rest in hope, because you will not abandon me in Hades or allow your Holy One to see decay. You have revealed the paths of life to me, You will fill me with gladness in your presence. Brothers and sisters, I can confidently speak to you about the patriarch David. He is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Since he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn an oath to him to seat one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, David spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah, He, that is the Messiah, was not abandoned in Hades, and his flesh did not experience decay. God has raised this Jesus. We are witnesses of this. Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God, there's the ascension we talked about, and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into the heavens, But he himself says, and now he quotes Psalm 110, the Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When they heard this, 
They were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he testified and strongly urged them, saying, be saved from this corrupt generation. So where do you find refuge in the face of opposition? I think one of the fascinating things about the book of Acts is how unafraid the Christians are. You read the book of Acts and their face is in the wind and they're walking through hardship and trials and opposition and push back from the world around them and yet they are so bold and so courageous and so undaunted and unafraid. This is Peter's very first sermon. This is the first Christian sermon in the book of Acts and just get it, there's tension in this city. This city crucified the Messiah 50 days ago. These people Peter is talking to, Seven weeks ago, they yelled, crucify him, about a mile from this spot where Peter is standing. And Peter grabs a microphone and begins to preach. Now, back up 50 days, and Peter denies he even knows Jesus, but now he's got a bullhorn and a death wish, and he is opening his mouth, and he's talking loud enough for them to hear it all the way in the back, because 3,000 people are going to come to faith today after this sermon is preached. So 3,000 people can hear him. That's how loud. He's using his outside voice. He's not afraid anymore. Seven weeks have made a big, big difference in the sermon that he preaches is the theme of the sermon is Jesus rules. You killed him, but now he's in charge. He rules in heaven. And so what he does is in this message, he proclaims the sometimes unsettling implications of the ascension of Jesus to the throne of David. And the first implication is this, expect a shakeup. Expect a shakeup. So we know what just happened because we saw it when we studied the text last week. Jesus' first act as king was to do what? To pour out his spirit on his people. That's what he told them would happen. He says, I'm gonna go away and I'm gonna send the spirit. I'm going to the Father, spirit's coming. I'm going up, spirit's coming down, right? So that's what happened. Back up and take in where we are and what's led to where we are. So in Acts chapter one, Jesus says, Okay, I want you to wait in Jerusalem. And as you're waiting in Jerusalem, you will receive power from on high. The Holy Spirit's gonna come. And then you will be my what? Witnesses. You'll receive power. Spirit's gonna come. Then you will be my witnesses. So that's Acts chapter one. Acts chapter two, one to 13, power comes from the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter two, 14 through 41, Peter's witnessing. It's exactly what Jesus said would happen. Wait, Spirit's gonna come, you'll be my witnesses. They wait, Spirit comes, Peter opens his mouth. Peter's ready to talk because the Spirit has moved in his inner life and he's ready to bear witness to Jesus, the Messiah and resurrected King. And notice, he's doing this even in spite of the fact that there are hecklers. So we heard him in verse 13 when we looked at that last week. There are these hecklers and they're claiming that all of this stuff, this weird phenomena that's going on is just explained by drunk Galileans. And don't you love the opening words of verse 14? Peter stood up with the 11, raised his voice and proclaimed. 
Again, Peter just denied this same Jesus a stone's throw from this spot 50 days earlier, and now he hears hecklers, and he says, I'm going to use your heckling as my opening line. And that's what he says. Everybody listen up. They're not drunk. Right? In, other, in some ways, I feel like Peter's being a little bit playful. I feel like Peter's kind of saying, look, you can be a skeptic, but but bring a better game, right? Step up your skeptic game because it's nine in the morning, right? It's, it's almost like Peter seems to be playfully saying, look, I'm not putting it past the Galileans to hit the fruit of the vine a little bit too hard. It's happened before, but not before breakfast, right? It's only nine o'clock in the morning. I don't think that's what's going on, right? And so he, he takes their criticism as the sermon opener. He says, it's not drunkenness at nine o'clock. You asked what this means in verse 12 because they did. What does this mean? And Peter says, I'm glad you asked. Open your Bible to the book of Joel. And these are people who love the Old Testament. They're there for a feast in Jerusalem. They believe in the Old Testament. And so Peter says, if you've got a Bible, and I hope you do, open up to the book of Joel and let's look at what Scripture says because Scripture tells you what's happening right here out in the streets of Jerusalem. Verse 16, this, what you're seeing, is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. If you read your Old Testament, you know this day was coming. And here's what Joel says. It will be in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all people. That's what's going down. The spirit's been poured out on all people. And Joel said the sons and daughters would prophesy. Guess what you were just hearing? Multilingual prophets declaring the greatness of God as the prophets had done of old. They, for centuries, prophets have declared the greatness of God. And now these new prophets are doing the same. You see the sequence of things in verse 33. Look down in your passage in God's word. Verse 33, therefore, he's bringing it in for a landing. Since Jesus has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and hear. So just notice for a second, the outpouring of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter two is not mainly about people having wild spiritual experiences. That's, that's not the point. Notice that the baptism of the Holy Spirit that comes in Acts chapter two doesn't lead to a sermon about spiritual gifts, doesn't lead to a sermon about speaking in tongues, doesn't lead to a sermon about the Holy Spirit. It leads to a sermon about the risen, exalted Jesus, which is about right, right? Because Jesus, in preparation for his disciples before he goes away to the Father, he says, I'm gonna send the Spirit, and the Spirit's gonna enable you to bear witness concerning me. That's exactly what goes down. Spirit comes and people start talking about Jesus. That's this sermon. Is Peter bearing witness to Jesus, his bodily resurrection and his heavenly reign. So Peter says, here's what's going on. The Spirit's been poured out and the effect of the outpouring is prophetic speech. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. You know, some 1,500 years before the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, one of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament, a guy named Moses, he says, if only all the Lord's people were prophets, and if only the Lord would place his spirit upon them all. Moses, 1,500 years before, dreamed about a day when everybody would know the Lord the way prophets know the Lord, when everybody would open their mouths and get to speak 
on behalf of God to other people about God's greatness. And his wish was fulfilled in Acts chapter 2. They all prophesy. The old and the young, the boys and the girls, the servants, the male servants, the female servants, rich, poor, old, young, everybody is mouth open talking about how great God is. 120 people go into the upper room, 120 people fire over their heads, 120 people fill with the Holy Spirit, 120 people speaking 15 different languages about how great God is. Everybody's a prophet. You know, the New Testament doesn't just talk about the priesthood of all believers. It talks about the prophethood of all believers. That's what's going on here in Acts. They all know God. They all have the Spirit. Prophecy in Scripture, just for clarification, prophecy in Scripture is more about forth-telling than foretelling. The prophets were essentially exhorters. They were preachers. They told you where God is in the world, what God is up to, what God's character is. So when it says your sons and your daughters will prophesy, it doesn't mean everybody in the Christian faith from now to the end is going to be predicting the future. You know, talking about weird events that are going to happen in days to come. A book that came out in 1988 called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. And obviously it didn't happen. Well, maybe it did. Um, hopefully it didn't because <laughs> we're all still here, right? Here, here's the thing, though. Book comes out in 1988, why the rapture is going to happen in 1988. Didn't happen. And then he writes another one. I mean, just unstoppable. Why the rapture will be in 1989. <laughs> Didn't happen in 89, so he took a few years off. And then he wrote another one, said it's going to be 93. Didn't happen in 93. He said it's going to be 94. It's like at some point, when? Like, like when do you just stop? The Old Testament had a way of dealing with this. Old Testament false prophets didn't write more than one book. Uh, because they got stoned to death after they false prophesied just once. So uh, I'm glad he didn't get stoned, but maybe the new stoning could be, let's just stop publishing garbage books, right? Let's, just, let's not publish just weird books that try to foretell all the things about the future. Prophecy in Scripture is not mainly about predicting the future. The Old Testament prophets were telling it forth, forth-telling, they were declaring trust in God. They were saying things like, stop calling Egypt and Egypt's gods to save you from Babylon and Babylon's gods. It wasn't just mainly predictive future stuff. In the age of the Holy Spirit, prophetic ministry is radically democratized. God hands out prophecy badges and says, everybody open your mouth and watch, I'm gonna fill it. When you declare my greatness, open your mouth and I'm going to fill it. You know, some of our sons and daughters have prophesied. They've told their friends at school about how great God is. They've traveled to Nicaragua or DR and they've said, do you know how great God is? Sons and daughters, it was promised 2,000 years ago, everybody's going to get to talk about how good and faithful God is. Talk about expecting a shakeup. You look at verse 19. I will display wonders in the heaven above, 
signs on the earth below, blood and fire and a cloud of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and glorious day of the earth comes. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. In other words, this is apocalyptic language. It's saying that in this new era of the last days when the spirit is poured out, the earth is going to convulse. It's going to ripple with prophetic energy and power as the spirit breaks in on the world and the kingdom of God breaks in on the world through his spirit-empowered church. It's language that's used in many places in the Bible, many places in the Old Testament. And every time it's used, this language of sun and moon and blood in the sky and smoke and clouds and all the rest, right? Every time that language is used in the Old Testament, God speaks that way when he's bringing one kingdom down and he's gonna make another one triumph in its place. It's apocalyptic. Everything changes now in these last days. And Peter quotes Joel, that Old Testament prophecy, because he's basically saying, now that the Spirit's been poured out, get ready for a shakeup. Now that Jesus is the king at God's right hand, sitting on the forever throne of David, expect the enemy to come out guns blazing and expect the kingdom of God to keep advancing and to be unstoppable in the end. That, in a way, that is the book of Acts, right? Here's Peter's first sermon, and he's already given you a preview of the book of Acts. Spirit comes, crazy stuff is going to happen, expect the enemy to come out roaring, and expect the kingdom to keep advancing through the word of God and the gospel of Jesus. It's the book of Acts. In other words, now that the Spirit's poured out, everything that can be shaken will be shaken, and the only people who won't be shaken are verse 21 people, those who call on the name of the Lord. And Peter goes on in just a moment to say, and that Lord's name is Jesus. He's the Messiah, he's the Lord. Peter says the Spirit's been poured out, expect a shake up. Number two, the Spirit's been poured out, find a refuge. Find a refuge. Verse 22, fellow Israelites, listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. So Peter is saying, you saw this Jesus of Nazareth work miracles. And what was going on there? It was this. God gave a reference letter publicly viewable reference letter to Jesus called miracles. And those miracles should have told you who he is. They should have told you so that you know who you're looking at. This is a man attested by God. Every act that he does of power should be giving you a sense of the attestation of God, the verification of God. God is standing behind him and saying, I sent him. That's why he's doing all this awesome stuff. Friends, in the ministry of Jesus, you see the kindness of God. He says he worked miracles. He says God did miracles among you through Jesus of Nazareth. And then Jesus is installed at God's right hand and Jesus pours out his spirit on the church. And how is Jesus continuing to do and to teach and to heal in the world? Through his people in the power of the Holy Spirit. 
living so that others can find refuge in Christ, reflecting the character of Christ. Let me exhort you in this way, fellow Christian, don't let people reject Christianity because we're not acting like Jesus. Don't let it go down that way. Don't don't be a stumbling block to this world. Don't give them one more reason to walk away from the claims of Jesus. Let me press a little bit more. If, If people we know have struggles, have doubts about the Christian faith, and if they end up rejecting Christianity, let's make sure they've rejected it after they've faced up to Christianity's Christ, not his blundering representatives. By the way, one of the biggest blundering representatives is the guy preaching this text. Peter, he blew it 50 days ago. Right, so let's, on the other hand, let's not cave into cynicism. God gave Peter a new start. I've had one or two as well. Maybe you've had a new start. Aren't you glad that Jesus still manifests the kindness of God? What a joy, what a privilege, what a mercy that is. You, you wanna know what God is like? Read the Gospels. You wanna know what God is like? Look at Jesus. You, you need peace? Jesus calms storms. That's what he does. You, you need guidance? Jesus gives sight to the blind. You watch Jesus' work in the pages of the Gospels and see if that's not the kind of God your soul longs for. What's he like? He's the shepherd that leaves the 99 sheep to find the one that wandered off. That's what he's like. He asked the biggest outcast in town if he could have dinner with him tonight. That's what Jesus is like he breaks the hold of darkness over a boy who had become self-destructive. That's what Jesus is like. He sees a woman who's caught in sin and he silences her accusers. Who would say no to a God like this? This is Jesus revealing the heart and character of God. I have a question for us. What if our church looked like that? What if we as the people of God looked like, sounded like that? What if your home became a refuge for sinful people, outcast people, broken people, doubting people? What if they felt so welcome in your home, so loved in your home? What if your small group became fluent in mercy? In the ministry of Jesus, you see the kindness of God. In the cross of Jesus, you see the impulse of evil. Peter says, the miracles should have told you who Jesus truly was. What'd you go and do? Verse 23, you nailed him to a cross and killed him. You crucified him. You got Rome to pull the trigger and bury the body, but you guys worked together. It was the strangest unity the world has ever seen. Was the Jewish religious establishment working with the government, your occupiers, for a day you got together, you got on the same page, and you pulled the trigger together to crucify the Lord of glory. It was a big oops. It was a cosmic oops, and Peter's laying it at their charge. He's not relaxing. He's not hesitant about that. You did it. You crucified him. Martin Luther said, we all carry about in our pockets his very nails. The church has been singing, it was my sin that held him there. My sin 2,000 years after the fact, our sins were implicated in the very same spirit 
which brought about the crucifixion of Jesus. The late John Stott put it this way, before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it as something done by us. You think about the message of the gospel and how in one sense it is very much a confrontation with human pride. Because in our pride, so often, what does the gospel have to do? The gospel has to break us before it heals us. I wonder if that's your story. Gospel had to break something before it could start healing something. Having said that, let me say, Jesus doesn't break anybody indiscriminately. It's not like that's his first move. He's walking through the pages of the gospels and saying, you know what I do, I break people and then I heal them. Not if they're already broken. You see Jesus bump into people who are already broken and he can tell and he doesn't start breaking anything. He starts healing right now. So let's just start the work of healing with you right now. You've had broken down pat for years. I'm not gonna talk about that. What I'm gonna talk about with you is healing. The gospel is the great multitasker in God's hands. To the broken, Jesus doesn't come with more breaking. He begins his work of healing. The gospel addresses all states of soul. The gospel can afflict the comfortable and can comfort the afflicted. And God the Holy Spirit knows who needs the comfort and who needs the affliction. And he dispenses them at will as his wisdom determines is best. In the cross, you see the impulse of evil and the purpose of God. Peter's saying, you're responsible for the greatest act of evil in the history of the world. You executed the Son of God. But while you were busy sinning, he was busy saving. Verse 23. He, Jesus, was delivered up. That's a phrase referring to the cross. He was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge. In other words, there was a deeper magic at work in the cross of Jesus Christ that despite our human intentions to hang the Son of God on a cross and have him bumped off, God had plans that went underneath our best efforts to silence the Savior, and God was working in the midst and through it all. The best news in the world, friends, for people who have blown it, like you and me, is that our sins are many and his mercy is more. That the sovereign grace of God trumps human sin. God's got options. He exercised that option in his eternal wisdom. Peter says, you killed him, God raised him. You killed him, God raised him, death couldn't hold him. Nice try. <laughs> Didn't work. God wins. And then Peter reaches back and he quotes another Old Testament passage. This time it's not the Old Testament prophet Joel. It's the book of Psalms. He quotes from Psalm 16. That's why you see those words indented on your page. Verse 25, he's quoting Psalm 16. And he takes these words from David thousand years before, takes these words from David and applies them to Jesus. He takes David's words, puts them in the mouth of Jesus and says, Jesus spoke them more truly than David ever did. These words belong on the lips of David's greatest son even more than they ever were fitting for David. By the way, this is the New Testament author's favorite way to read the Bible. 
Their favorite way to read the Old Testament is to read the Old Testament looking for Jesus. Jesus taught them to do that in Luke chapter 24, right before he ascended. He gave them a 40-day master class on how to read the Old Testament, and he walked them through the law and the writings and the prophets and interpreted to them all the things in the Old Testament concerning himself. So he taught them 40 days. He said, when you read the Old Testament, look for me shining through the pages of the Old Testament. So what does Peter do? He's preaching a sermon. He says, there's a text back there, Psalm 16. I think it was talking about Jesus. That's what he does. He says, Psalm 16 was David prophesying about David's greatest descendant. And so you see the language there? David says of him, of Jesus. Verse 25, I saw the Lord ever before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. So Peter is saying, it was Jesus who saw the Lord ever before him. It was because of God's constant nearness that Jesus was unshaken. Jesus' heart was glad in God, even in affliction, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Jesus is the one who rested in hope, knowing that God wouldn't leave him in the ground, but would raise him up and not leave his body to decay. David is decayed. He says that. The next point is, this can't be ultimately fulfilled in David, because David's bones are right over there. This is the city of David. He's buried right in that spot, and we could dig up his bones if we wanted to. Jesus, nobody ever found the body because he's in heaven, physically resurrected. The text was about Jesus, and so Peter goes on preaching that passage by saying, you see verse 30? Now, God has put David's son on the throne. And then verse 33, since Jesus has been exalted to the right hand of God, he has poured out the spirit on us. So now Peter's come full circle. You ask what it means? Here's what it means that these people are prophesying. It means Jesus is on David's throne. You'll never move him off of it. And then he poured out his spirit and the last days, the, la- the lever of the last days has been thrown. We're in the beginning of the last phase. We expect a shakeup because the last days have arrived, but we also have a refuge. And so Peter pulls in on the very next page. He pulls in Psalm 110, which says all the king's enemies are gonna be made his footstool. It's a promise and a threat. Find your refuge in the one who's gonna win (laughs) or you're gonna be in trouble. You'll wish you had thrown your allegiance in with the one who's on the throne. You know, at the very beginning of the book of Psalms, there are two introductory chapters. And chapter two is a, Psalm chapter two is a royal psalm. It's a poem about the arrival of God's king who was simultaneously God's son. Here's what Psalm two ends with. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son or pay homage to the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Psalm two is a Jesus rules psalm. Psalm two is a promise and a threat. Those who refuse him perish in the way. Psalm two verse 12, those who take refuge in him are happy forever. What side of history do you wanna be on? when the curtain comes down. The urgency of this news that Jesus is now on the throne of David forever 
was not lost on Peter's audience. How do you know? Because of the question they asked the moment Peter stopped speaking. Verse 37. When they heard this, they were pierced, cut. They were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? There's a sense of urgency in their voice. Why? Because they're looking for refuge and they're hearing this is the only place you can find it, the ascended Jesus Christ. Expect a shakeup, find a refuge, come to the waters. Come to the waters. Brothers, what should we do? Verse 37, Peter replied, repent and be baptized. Repent meaning turn your life toward God. Turn your life away from what you were facing a moment ago with all your hopes and turn it towards your hope in Jesus. That's repentance. And then he says, repent and be baptized. Baptism is your public, demonstrable expression of faith. He could have said, and in other places does say, repent and believe. Here he says, repent and be baptized because baptism is that demonstrable expression that you belong to God now, that you are now following Jesus Christ. So often in scripture, new beginnings in scripture involve a water feature. (laughs) The new creation is signified by water because the first creation came through water. We saw that when we studied Genesis chapter one, the spirit hovers over what? The waters, the watery abyss, and he brings forth life. The earth was birthed in water and spirit. Your baptism is an awesome, awesome thing. It's not just some small decision. You are reenacting an ancient story. You are stepping into the flow of history, the history of God and his people. You think about how old this story is. Go back to the book of Exodus. God saves his people from slavery under the thumb of Pharaoh, brings them out. He's gonna bring them into the promised land, but there's something in the way, the Egyptian army and the Red Sea. You talk about being caught between the devil and the deep blue sea. That's what Israel was. And their back is up against the watery depths and God did what? Opens a path in the sea and Israel disappears underwater and God raises her up from the watery depths and gives them new life and a new name on the far side of the shores of the Red Sea. And in baptism, the same thing happens. The same thing, the same story is told. You disappear underwater and God raises you from the watery depths to give you new life and a new name. You are immersed into the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. You take a new name. Peter's audience says, what do we do? And he says, come to the waters. That's what you do. It's the original altar call. Baptism. It's not walk an aisle, pray a prayer, sign a card. It's come to the waters, go down under the water, come out new. It's a display of the story of what God has done. Friend, have you repented and believed? Have you turned from what you were trusting in a moment ago and put your trust in the only hope of the world, Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection, his cross absorbing the wrath that you deserved? Have you trusted in him, his payment for your sins, the new life that he offers to all who believe? 
If you haven't, now's the time. <laughs> it's urgent. Repent and believe. And if you have repented and believed, have you come to the waters? Have you come full circle? Did you go down and reenact the story, the ancient story? As Jesus' followers, we pattern our life after his. So again, the book of Acts, we said this a couple weeks ago when we were studying this, is the book of Acts shows Jesus' disciples retracing Jesus' own steps. His footsteps in the Gospel of Luke, our footsteps in the book of Acts. And it's the same patterns. So in the Gospels, we see Jesus born. In Acts, we see the church is born. In the Gospels, we see Jesus enter into the waters and the Spirit descends upon him like a dove. In the book of Acts, we see his followers enter the waters and Peter says in verse 38, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Spirit descends upon the church. It's the same sort of thing. Then they go and they do works and healing in Jesus' name. They're doing the very same things they saw Jesus doing and then they're oppressed and they're on trial and they're arrested just like Jesus was oppressed and on trial and arrested and many of them are dying. It's the same pattern. We saw this before. You know, in many parts of the world, places where you'll be shamed or killed for becoming a Christian, they don't count it as a full-on conversion, as a renunciation of your old life until you step into the waters. You know that? Until you're baptized in water. And in that respect, they have a more biblical view of the gravity of baptism than many Christians in the West. It is not insignificant. It is not unimportant. Come to the waters. Jesus isn't asking. Come to the waters. Declare your mind. I want to leave you with one more word. Because Jesus rules, cease striving and trust your unshakable king. Martin Luther is well known as the leader of the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s. Someone who was his sidekick, one of his sidekicks, who was less well known is a man by the name of Philip Melanchthon. And Melanchthon had a different spirit. He was a very timid soul. And there were many times where he was with Luther and he was very worked up and lathered up and anxious and fearful. And he was saying, the Pope's coming to get us. The emperor is coming to get us. And Luther would say the same counsel to Melanchthon very, very often. He would say these words, let Philip cease to rule the world. <laughs> it was Luther's way of saying, it's not your job to rule the world. That job is already taken. Jesus rules. Jesus rules from heaven and our times are in his hands and so we go forward courageous and trusting. We go forward fearless and trusting. You know, if Psalm 16 was the background track of the Savior, Jesus, in his earthly life, if in reliance upon God, every day Jesus was singing Psalm 16, because you are at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Now that Jesus rules in heaven and his spirit's been poured out on the church, Psalm 16 gets to be who? our background track. We get to be the ones who say, because you, Jesus, are at God's right hand, we will not be shaken. We can be unshaken. Has everything to do with where Jesus is. If he's on his throne, we can be unshaken. If God is for us, who can be against us? If Jesus claims you, who can condemn you? If Jesus intercedes for you, what can finally defeat you? 
That was the spirit that animated the book of Acts from start to finish. Because of where Jesus is, Matt can cease to rule the world. I don't have to be in control. I don't need to labor under the, the illusion of control. Friends, may we live our lives boldly and fearlessly in light of this fact. Jesus rules.